sci-fi roundtable i'm john cronshaw and i'm shane thomas and today we're talking about post-apocalyptic engineering with our guest darren hanshaw hi everyone i'm darren hanshaw i'm author of the engineer looking forward to talking to you guys about post-apocalyptic engineering i'm also a a r&d engineer in real life so i have some unique perspectives on that as well on top of all that, I'd also like to thank Darren for his public service. Be, besides writing books and uh, doing R&D and engineering himself, he's also a volunteer firefighter out saving lives. So uh, thanks, Darren. Sure. Thank you. Why don't we talk a little bit about your uh, real-life engineering background before we get into the post-apocalypse? You know, when people think engineers, they think somebody that's very broadly qualified to do a lot of different things. But in real life, we're much more specialists. So I'm a mechanical engineer by training, and I've kind of segued into R&D in my company. But my company makes uh, – I work for Zebra Technologies, and they make uh, barcode scanners and RFID readers, um, some mobile computers. So I'm very limited to being a specialist in electronics and optomechanical assemblies and things like that specifically. So if you were to ask me to build a building or something like that, I you know might have a rough idea of the challenges, but I'm certainly much more of a specialist when compared to uh, the character in my book or a type of engineer that would be required in a post-apocalyptic setting. Sure. I think you'd have to be a generalist in engineering at that point, just because you'd really be back to basics. Yeah. But I think even the training that I've had in school has prepared me to look at things with a mindset where I could be of more help than, I guess, an average individual in trying to figure things out in that type of setting. Let's talk a bit about the book and uh, what what led you to apply your experience toward a post-apocalyptic setting. The Engineer, it's a Chronicles of Acteon story, Acteon's The Engineer. It's a story about people that are living in a post-apocalyptic city, and it's a ruined futuristic city that has fallen almost 100 years before the people have arrived there. And there are people there called the ancients, and there's now no trace of them. They've disappeared without a trace, almost like the Mayans. They're now trying to figure out how to live in that city and survive. So there's different dominions that have formed in the city that have kind of formed different sects and are trying to survive. So there's a lot of politics, and there's a political center called Redemption or called Pyramid in the center of Redemption. And it's one of the buildings of the ancients. It's a mostly intact futuristic building. And people are using that as kind of a neutral zone for discussing politics and making trade agreements and whatnot. And that's protected by a group called the Night Arbiters. It's not as disordered as, you know, a near post-apocalyptic story, because there's quite a bit of order that the different dominions have instilled upon the, the ruins of redemption in their little areas that they live in. and they're basically fighting over resources or struggling with each other for control of more territory. So Acteon's the main character, and he's an engineer. So he wants to figure out what's going on in the city, what the artifacts are, and how to use them, and how to kind of improve the area around redemption for the people there. He almost comes off like a bit of a superhero in, in a way because everyone's just kind of going about their day-to-day. 
and then you got this guy that's able to do new things with the same resource. He looks at things from a different perspective, and he's not just trying to survive. And uh, meanwhile, while he's doing that, people are trying to take advantage of his skills for their own power so that they have an advantage over their enemies. And there's also some people called the Keepers that fear the technology in redemption. They feel like it's led the ancients to their doom. So they're hunting down the tech and the artifacts, and they're trying to destroy it. So he comes into conflict with the Keepers a lot. In one of the old Joe Rogan stand-ups, he talks about uh, how we're not smart. We just use stuff that smart people invented. And that if every engineer and every academic disappeared, we'd be left with stuff. We wouldn't be able to run our power plants. We wouldn't be able to keep our infrastructure going. So how how bad would it be from a real engineer standpoint if you all disappeared and just us regular Joes were left with the world today? What kind of a chaotic situation would we fall into? We live in a specialist society. So a lot of us are trained to a very deep degree in a very specific field. There's not many individuals unless somebody's really studied to be effective in a variety of different situations and to understand a lot of different situations. And things like power plants even require such specialists to run them that if you don't have the people that are running those power plants around, you might not be able to utilize them even though they're sitting right there. Or it might take a lot of study and a lot of experimentation to try to figure out how to run that power plant. So, yeah, people would be in pretty big trouble for a while, and they'd have to come up with some alternate techniques to try to survive and provide power and get crops. I think another big factor is the layout of where we get our resources from. So right now, things are shipped in from, you know, in the United States across the country. Food is grown out west for our area, and it's shipped out east. And if we were just to rely on the farmland in our area, there might not be enough for the people that live here. Oh, sure. Yeah, a lot of that's been converted in the past three or four generations, and it's now either housing or factories, uh, shopping malls. We don't have a lot of farm country. The series I'm working on at the moment, I've got two main characters, and one of them is a former journalist, and one of them is a social media branding expert, and they're kind of put into a bit of a post-apocalyptic situation and they realize we've actually got no skills. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a really good post-apocalyptic book that I read quite a number of years ago called Earth Abides by George Stewart. I love how that book explores just how unstable the ecology is for a while because once humans are gone, humans are kind of at the top of the food chain and we keep the ecology stable. And once you eliminate us, there's kind of waves of different... Yeah, that's when we like the swarms of rats and then the swarms of ants and things. Yeah, yeah. So as the years progress after this guy survives this post-apocalyptic event, he's witnessing all these big ecological disasters where these swarms of creatures are surviving. And then the next year, there's a different swarm of creatures. And it's pretty fascinating to see. And that's one of the things that we definitely experience. Where it ends and it's gone a few generations down the line and one of the main characters had a hammer and then that turned after a few generations into a bit of like a religious object. (laughs) It's actually quite fun. Some of the uh, artifacts in the redemption universe end up being worshipped by different people. They form uh, cults and groups to worship those pieces of technology. It reminds me a bit of like the cargo cult thing where people who lived on isolated islands would get a bit of a shipwreck or a crate arriving that had Coke cans and things like that and they'd see them as like gifts from the gods and uh, (laughs) start worshipping them. Sounds like the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy where they get a, a Coke bottle 
and it changes their society, and then the guy has to go on a mission to get it out of their territory. <laughs> what are your favorite post-pop books? Uh, I like quite a few. Earth Abides is obviously up there. Swan Song oh, is yeah. an old one as well. I always tell people is is the good version of the stand. But Steve, <laughs> uh, I'm not a big Stephen King fan. Lucifer's Hammer by Larry Niven oh, yeah, yeah. are excellent. Did you ever uh, read the Dark Tower series by Stephen King, starting with the Gunslinger? Yeah, I read the first couple of those. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got through them and enjoyed them. Uh, now I don't like Stephen King's horror because I'm not much of a horror reader outside of zombies. But I did really enjoy the Dark Tower. I actually really enjoyed the first book or two, and then I feel like this the story kind of petered out. When we talk about writing, I guess Stephen King is very much a pantser, so he doesn't know where the books are going to go. So his stories, I've noticed, really meander in different directions and sometimes just stagnate for a while. And book five was that for me, I found, and I just kind of lost interest in that series. Oh, gotcha. One pretty amazing story is that Wizard and Glass portion of it that tells the origin of the gunslinger yeah i are you talking about the wind through the keyhole the uh the standalone side story yeah when roland's a boy that's right it's an excellent story it's kind of post-apocalypse but at the same time it uh it's some other universe so it's not really our post-apocalypse last week everyone heard three excerpts and the first excerpt was from the engineer and it was called the engineer's workshop and it's all about Acteon uh, setting up his home base after he's proven himself to some of the local politicians. So we've already heard it. Darren, why don't you uh, tell us how that was key to the story? I really wanted to establish this key building, kind of like the home base for Acteon to do his work and uh, a lot of his experimentation to take place. And I really felt that I wanted to share the description of the engineer's workshop with you guys because it shows his medieval understanding of technology and kind of what it can do, you know, that he understands a little bit of how to construct a fireproof building and also how he can cast different parts like the vent holes, you know, the vent covers and things like that because he's developed some early sand casting uh, techniques. A lot of our parts nowadays that we're kind of uh, spoiled with are molded or cast using molds that are kind of negatives and Sand casting is one of the early techniques with that, where somebody will whittle something out of wood and then burn it away and open the mold back up and be able to pour molten metal in it. Usually it's not too reusable, depending on what material it's made out of, but uh, the mold usually will only give you a limited amount of parts. So Acteon uses some of that very base casting technology to create some of the parts of the workshop. But it also just shows, you know, the risks, I think, in that type of experimentation. He's dealing with a lot of things that he doesn't understand, artifacts and chemicals that he doesn't know the limitations of. He doesn't know the dangers involved. So he builds this building that can contain and mitigate hazards. It's really reflective of uh, safety culture and modern manufacturing where, you know, I recently went to a facility and the first day I was there, I spent two hours just in safety classes and I had to shave my chin in case I had to wear a rescue respirator. So it's uh, Acteon's applying a lot of this sort of caution. He's done some experiments that have had a pretty dire cost because nobody really knows scientific method anymore. They don't have a safe approach to it. So a lot of this has come from experience and working with these things and, and uh, running into trouble. In order to get these ideas together, I mean, how are you doing your research to get 
these antiquated methods. As a firefighter, I'm very aware of hazards. How to mitigate them is something that I'm keenly aware of as a firefighter. Uh, you know, I'll go in, you know, even uh, earlier this week, we had a gas leak where there was gas leaking from one of the lines that's going into somebody's stove, and I had to deal with that. So when you think about this guy is going to be taking these random chemicals and he doesn't even know what they are, you know, what are some common hazards that it's going to provide and how do you deal with it? I had to wrap my head around with some of it, you know, with a very low level understanding of technology. How would you deal with that in some sort of workshop floor? So a lot of those techniques weren't anything that I necessarily took, like the slots in the floor, the vents in the top of the vault. It's just something that I thought of to help mitigate those factors. It's basically you preparing for our own apocalypse and how you're going to get by afterward, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of, you know. <laughs> for me, hopefully I wouldn't have to do quite as much experimentation as Acteon. <laughs> yeah, you were lucky enough to be educated before the big fall. He's doing a lot more um, cause and effect. You know, he's, he's, he's looking into, you know, iterative designs, iterative experimentation, and he doesn't really understand a lot of the principles of different things. So he's learning them as he goes. And a lot of the times it's trial and error, and some sometimes he just kind of mistakenly runs into something that can be done with a substance or an object. A lot of great inventions are, are just kind of a consequence of, oops, I was trying this, but instead we discovered that. Yeah, one thing I try to show in the story is that he comes across sometimes artifacts that he thinks give some interesting effect, uh, and he doesn't really know how to use them yet, so he'll bring them back to the workshop and just kind of keep them. And that's building his toolbox. And we do that as engineers. We're kind of aware of new sensing technologies. We're aware of new technological capabilities and manufacturing capabilities. And we put that in our toolbox and file it away. And when it solves a problem that we're trying to solve, that's when we pull it out. And we know to use that then. So that's kind of showing, you know, he's applying that type of technique here or in his workshop where he stores those artifacts that he doesn't yet know what he can use them for. Sometimes, well, Actium wants to build the world up to help it, but then a lot of his funding comes from helping out armies. And the second excerpt from the engineer was about the Battle of Holdfast, where he more or less invented a uh, a bit of a, a laser beam or, or, you know, the ant under the magnifying glass type of situation. So one of the things that he does with his uh, metal casting is, is he realized that he could actually melt down sand and cast lenses. So... He's learned to cast some basic lenses, and there's also some lenses that are found among the ruins that are made out of better material and with better quality. So they're artifact lenses that he uses, and he has one of those on, as a scope on his bow, and he uses it a lot of times to see things that are very far away, and not too many other people have that capability. One of the things he notices when he arrives up in Holdfast, and he's coming off a different project, uh, another defensive project for a Dominion called Shield, and they take him up on this tour of Shield, and he arrives in Holdfast, and there's this invasion of tribals that are just outside the borders of Redemption, and they're not civilized. They're just kind of living in this rough tribal lifestyle, and they're, they're considered barbarians by the Dominions, and often they'll come out of the jungle and try to raid to steal any resources that they can find. Uh, so that's what he's coming across here with the Battle of Holdfast. But he gets to this building of the ancients called the Sun Tower and notices there's these very large lenses in 
the top of it to do something to reflect light or focus light. A lot of cases, the technology of the ancients, he's not really sure what the purpose is. So a lot of times it's repurposed. And in this case, he realizes he could focus the sun, much like a magnifying glass, to a very intense beam. And he uses it to create a diversion for the tribals and to light some of their tents on fire. And kind of realizes that war is pretty dangerous and war is pretty horrifying. And he ends up burning some of the tribals to death. And that's not something that he wanted to do. But I, I guess that scene I wanted to share with you guys because it, it shows, you know, okay, he, he's an engineer and he's participating in warfare with his inventions. But this was a very obvious scene where he realizes he's actually killing people with his inventions. You know, he's actually hurting people. I suppose that must be a real dilemma for engineers in general. You were saying about doing barcode stuff and that technology was like used in the Holocaust. So it's like there's always the dark side to any kind of technology. And I don't know whether there's some kind of uh, trepidation or strange feelings you have as an engineer in kind of coming to terms with unintended consequences of what you've invented or what you're creating. Yeah, there's definitely, and especially with sensing technology in my field, there's a lot of effort that goes into tracking things first. And other people also want to track people. So we try to solve some of their problems with tracking people or monitoring people to make sure that they're not stealing from a store, for example, or something like that. But technology like that can be abused in the wrong hands, which we know from dystopians like 1984 and, and other things like that. So there's always a uh, cost to technology. And, and that's one thing I always try to show as I was writing The Engineer is that there are some very dangerous things that we're working with here. And uh, what is the cost of sharing them with the world? Yeah, we've definitely got the technology there now to create quite a horrific dystopia if you want it. So. <laughs> <laughs> the tools are there. They've just to be abused in the wrong way. <laughs> a lot of people in Redemption actually feel that the artifacts were what led to the destruction of the ancients. So that's one of the philosophies of the keepers is they want to destroy those artifacts to prevent the same end from coming to the people that live in redemption now. So there's a lot of debate on that. And Acteon kind of stands on the side where he feels like truth needs to be understood and people need to be educated. Now, Darren, your third segment is from your upcoming book, Guardians of Redemption. And it's actually Acteon's sidekick, Lauren, who's doing a bit of the engineering, and they're working with Lightlands. Lauren is kind of Acteon's apprentice, and in the second book, she's taking on more of an expanded role. So Acteon's off doing something, and he's too busy to deal with these Lightlands, and Lauren is helping him to see if they're a useful artifact that they could use in a war that's going on. But... The light lances are kind of an interesting artifact because I wanted to create an artifact that was pretty powerful. And you could see that they're actually chopping down trees with just a sweep of these lances. But I wanted to create something that, that was dangerous, too, and that had a pretty severe limitation. So what she finds here is that it's not so simple that it's just cutting down these trees with these energy beams. It actually explodes if it's left on long enough. So that's what she finds. Its companion is not listening to her. And... He keeps using the light lance and ends up creating this giant explosion. From the sound of what you're saying, there's definite hints of people like Jack Vance and Gene Wolfe in what you're doing, like the dying Earth stuff. I don't think it's so much that the planet is dying or the world is dying. It's that 
these people now are rebuilding. So it's a little bit more hopeful. They're trying to create a stable civilization and they're trying to make sure that everybody can be fed and everybody can be safe to live their lives out. And obviously there's a lot of problems like these tribal invaders that want to come in and raid them for resources. There's a lot of lawlessness in the land. There's a lot of bickering between the different dominions and politics that kind of gets in the way. You know, I've never read Jack Vance or, or Gene Wolfe, but, and I, I definitely would like to after this conversation. It sounds like the world of redemption is a little bit more hopeful as far as what can we do now to improve this world and avoid the same thing from happening again. I think hope is the underlying theme of a lot of these stories, isn't it? Like I think of someone like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, where even through that drudgery and horror of that world, it's, you still end with a glimmer of hope. I think that goes with things like The Postman as well. I mean, we mentioned that a few weeks ago on the podcast. It's all about rebuilding and finding the little bits of hope and grabbing onto them. And um, Nothing yeah. like Waterworld, though, where it's all about using the last bits of diesel fuel <laughs> to power jet skis. <laughs> well, what else are you going to do for fun? <laughs> That's one of the main themes in one of my favorite uh, series is Mad Max. And Max ends up being kind of this legendary hero that is just trying to help these people along in a direction to a hopeful future. And I think a lot of the movies show that he just kind of comes out of the wasteland and tries to help them find a safe place to rebuild. I always enjoyed that. You wake up on a post-apocalyptic world. What's the very first thing you're building? I probably want some sort of shelter. I want some place to live in. So, you know, a home base is important and a home base that is not obvious, is not easy to find. Yeah, you'd want something where people aren't going to be able to envy what you've got. <laughs> yep. So finding a place to use that isn't going to be an obvious place to find for people looking for resources or to take whatever I build is going to be important and probably not building it, probably taking advantage of some structure that exists already. I read a lot of, uh, I guess zombie is post apocalypse or, or like during apocalypse fiction. And one common theme there is always uh, scavenging for canned food. <laughs> You'd probably be doing a lot of that in the, in the <laughs> short term. Yeah, that and also just trying to figure out some renewable resource to, you know, either raise animals or grow crops or something like that, or find a wilderness that's big enough that you could hunt in regularly. One of my first goals that I always thought of was, you know, living in Long Island is the winters are really, you know, pretty harsh here. And I would fear being able to survive a winter here. So oh, yeah, big time. thinking about heading south pretty quickly. But I think that happens in the road as well. A lot of people are heading south to get away from the winter. And there's too many people heading south in some of the cases. And uh, I think that creates some issues. Right. Maybe wintering for the first go and, uh, you know, living off canned food and then going down after a lot of the depopulations already occurred. Yeah, after they take care of each other. Yeah, <laughs> that that might be the way to go, to be the laggard. Another really interesting take on the, the apocalypse was Jericho. Do you remember that TV series, Jericho? I did not oh, catch I it. I never saw that, man. Yeah, yeah that's, that's actually a very good series. It, the world kind of ends, but it falls apart in a more, I guess, civilization ends, and it falls apart in a much more almost realistic way, I guess, instead of just everybody dying. It follows the story of this small town that's, I don't think it's in Texas, but it's close to Texas. It's this little town called Jericho, and it just shows how these people try to survive in the apocalypse. And I think realistically, that's going to play a big factor, how on a community or a local level people can survive and turn things around and protect one another. 
because the apocalypse stories that we're kind of used to, like Mad Max, show a lot of these loners wandering the wasteland. But I think realistically, people are going to try to band together with like-minded individuals to survive. It's like you were saying, we're far too specialized to go at it on our own. I mean, humanity has yeah. always worked best in a group. Yeah, so when you think about, you know, who who do you know and who would you want to band together with and what skills do they have? People have different skills. Like I know, I know somebody that can forge knives, so I would want to be working with him, you know, or somebody that knows how to hunt, you want them to be working with you. If we have to do everything, it's almost unrealistic that we're going to be able to do everything for ourselves. We're not going to be able to open up society 2.0 within the next five years. It would have to be, you know, living this maybe simple agrarian or hunter-gatherer lifestyle until we could establish a large community again. Yeah, I think that happens on a local level almost. Like I, I imagine my small town, if we were to fall into apocalypse, you know, I'm one of the community leaders as a fire chief. So trying to get uh, people to band together and help one another and police ourselves to prevent crime would be priority. You know, if everybody's not turning into zombies and it's just that the government has fallen apart, that's going to be something we want to do, protect ourselves from crime and also make sure we have enough food. So maybe people having, you know, using every available inch of space to grow tomatoes and crops is going to be important. My wife's uncle is a veterinarian and he swears that he is the right kind of doctor post-apocalypse because veterinarians have to do everything doctors do, but without all the technology that modern medicine uses. That's true. And vet, vets actually have to be a little bit more diverse, I guess, as far as their skills, because they oh, need to be able to diagnose any type of issue for a pet. Sure. Whereas a yeah, general practitioner for a human is just going to say, oh, this is a little beyond my ability. Uh, go to the specialist. Right. I'm going to send you to the podiatrist or this doctor or that doctor. And, and there's only one doctor for your dog. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that statement. Yeah, but then they might diagnose you with some, like, myxomatosis <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> oh, it's clear that you have the mange. <laughs> <laughs> I think post-apocalyptic medicine would be a lot more like old sawbones on the battlefield than it is, like... uh your checkup nowadays. What was it? A novel a couple of years ago that dealt a lot with that, which was, um, I think it was Meg Ellison's book, The Unnamed Midwife, that was a actual midwife from her perspective. And I think it's basically that most people are unable to give birth to a healthy child. So there's just a collapse of a generation and it causes a lot of death. There's a lot of stuff in that about medicine and having to hunt old moles for antibiotics and birth control pills and things like that. Childbirth would be one of the most dangerous things that we're not used to being as dangerous as it used to be. My wife, when she gave birth to our son, she was in labor for, I think it was 115 hours. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. That's a long was, one. It was <laughs> terrible. Our son had his umbilical cord around his neck and all this. And it was like, she had to have a emergency C-section in the end. And we were just like, Okay, if it wasn't for modern medicine, you would both be dead. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's yeah. no, and it's like, that's really sobering when you think of like, think about you know, how post- many, sure. Yeah. How many loved ones have had to have a C-section? I know, you know, two, two people very close to me have, and 
boy, th- these are all people that wouldn't be here. And just things like appendectomies and, you know, just quite simple run-of-the-mill operations that save lives and if you don't oh, yeah. deal with them. It's- <laughs> well, even, even people with diabetes not having insulin, people that are oxygen-dependent not having that. You know, what a, a lot of, you know, women that give birth need is antibiotics. That doesn't exist in a post-apocalyptic world. You know, how do we make those? So people that have a skill in uh, figuring out what plants do what are going to be pretty important figures in our society. Oh, sure. Biologists or botanists or whomever would be highly regarded really quickly. Because that's a big specialty, too. You know, the pharmacology, how do you create the... um, drugs that we need to survive somewhere down the line in your series you've got to team up with a pharmacologist and so we can get that point of view as well of actions herbalist going around gathering penicillin or whatever well he he does i don't know if you remember the early story in the engineer is it when his mother gets sick and he's looking into you know it's kind of his past that he's uh, sharing and his mother had been sick and he's trying to figure out ways to cure her and he spent quite a number of years on that and he ended up developing a couple of herbal concoctions that help people. Uh, one of them, which helps them deal with pretty severe amounts of pain. He's almost a polymath in that sense because he's applying this kind of scientific approach to investing yeah. many things. And, and uh, I think that's why there were so many polymaths in the past. You know, if you look at Da Vinci and Hero of Alexandria and all these different people that just did so much in so many different fields. They were, you know, they were living in a non-specialist society. So just the fact that their mind worked that way and they were able to do, to apply that kind of rigorous experimentation to so many different fields allowed them to be these polymath figures that we look back on and go, wow, how did they do that much? And even the smartest individuals in our society now, like Stephen Hawking, were, were in such a specialist society that they can't have breakthroughs in more than a few fields. Sure. It reminds me of, there's an expression, I forget the name of the book, uh, but some samurai wrote a book and, and described that, you know, there's many paths to greatness, but once you realize how to be great, you can apply being great to many other disciplines. It's more about training yourself to strive to be great that probably enabled guys like Acteon and Da Vinci to have these multidisciplinary impacts. It's true, but there's a limit to that. And I think oh, yeah. as we now, now for sure, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. As we become such specialists in our fields, like, like I'm a mechanical engineer and I'm a optical, optomechanical engineer. And I, you know, I specialize in these, these layouts of different uh, sensing products. But if you were to put me in a different field, it would take me five to 10 years to become as skilled as I am now in my field. Right, you have a career of maybe 40 to 60 years, so you can only do that possibly three or four times. And if you do that, it's going to take away the impact on your first and second careers rather than you know letting you live your whole career life developing new things. And a lot of that is just the ability to to both record and share knowledge, you know, books, and then subsequently the internet provides because I can, as an engineer, do one to five years of research on a different field and I could become a big expert in it and I could have basically the sum of all human knowledge in that field in my brain for a while or at least that accessible at my fingertips. But they don't have that in the world of the engineer or these post-apocalyptic worlds that we're talking about. So 
because of that, the depth of knowledge in any given field is just not impressive. So somebody like Action can become, you know, a master optical engineer, a master mechanical engineer, a master chemist, a master at coming up with drugs for different health problems. And people, wow, he knows so much, but he really doesn't know much in any given field compared to what a specialist society can be. That's actually, if you ever read the book Lucifer's Hammer by Larry Niven, there's a character called the professor. He realizes this and he tries to preserve a library of books that he specially selected for an apocalyptic situation so that if people know where to unearth that once society stabilizes, it can help them regain their specialism. Lewis Darnell, I think it was, did that book called The Knowledge, which was meant to bring together all the knowledge we need if an apocalypse happens. And I realised the irony the other day that I've got it on Audible, and I think I've got it on my Kindle as well. So if the power goes up. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, so just being able to, you know, put all those books onto a couple electronic devices and be able to power them could be effectively preserving that wealth of human knowledge. Yeah, you just need the exercise bike with a battery generator to keep your Kindle charged. There's plenty of different ways to come up with uh, techniques to run very low current things, very low current demanding things like that. Whereas, you know, you'd have trouble powering a city. It wouldn't take that much knowledge to figure out how to power your Kindle. You'd want to go with paperwhite over fire, though. One problem that's going to hurt us, though, is the cloud right? Because everything's on the cloud. And once the cloud goes down, you can't get any of that stuff. So now so many devices now are just acting as an interface to the cloud. So you don't really have it on your own hard drive. You don't really have data that you need on your own hard drive. It's all just accessible. Oh, I'm Um, old school. I have all the files. I keep them all. I have flash drives. That will be helpful in finding those old archives. But Imagine a generation from now, all of our kids having uh, all of the big technologies on the cloud, and then one of us is just an old man, goes, (laughs) well, I have a Kindle with all this stuff on it. I've got my files backed up, and they're like, you're weird, Grandpa. (laughs) There was a thing quite recently, wasn't there, with MySpace transferring over to another server and just wiping 10 years' worth of music and photos. I remember MySpace <laughs> before Facebook, yep. There was a guy called Tom on there. He was your friend. <laughs> if you can't power that massive database that Facebook and MySpace and Google and Amazon are using, you can't access that knowledge, right? So that makes it kind of an interesting uh, thought experiment there, you know, with, with the value of data. And now we, we've miniaturized data so much that you can, you can have terabytes of data in the palm of your hand. But now we're not doing that anymore. We're pushing it out to some remote location. That also lends to, I guess, the same discussion as uh, self-sustainability, right? A few years ago in the Northeast, we had that blackout of power because a few power plants went down on a grid that encompassed the whole Northeast of the United States. And because of that, all of the Northeast was affected, basically, and did not have enough power because... The grids weren't isolated into sectors, so it created a very vulnerable infrastructure. So even if you were to get a power plant running, a single power plant, you'd have to disconnect so much of the grid from it or else it would be a constant power draw on that grid. So it would be actually a tremendous engineering effort just to get enough of the grid detached from that power plant to be able to power whatever 
section of city you were trying to power or, or suburbia? Modern power plants are unique in that there's multiple fuel sources and they all compete daily for access to contribute their power to the grid. Many power plants are offline or in the case of trash to energy plants in the Northeast, they're running all the time because 70% of their profits are from incinerating garbage and only 30% come from actually putting power on the grid. All these other power plants and fuel sources are so interwoven that, you know, sorting it all apart will be a real mess. That I think is a real danger. And it's not just a danger to, uh, you, you know, to our society if we're threatened by external enemies or, you know, attacked by aliens or something like that, but a real danger in the apocalypse. So we, we're not developing our infrastructures so that New York State or Connecticut State or my little town of Sound Beach could just flip a switch and turn everything back on. It's not possible. So that lends itself to a real danger, and it requires almost a greater degree of specialty to just power a little area of society or even how do you get that information, you know, that we were talking about, how do you get the information that was on a cloud off of it so that we can learn the things that we need to learn. If the internet went down, I mean, even only being 15 or 20 years into internet dependence for our source of knowledge, you know, aside from academic knowledge, I think it would be really hard for us to go back to the days of looking at maps and using the Dewey Decimal System and indexing cards to research things in libraries. Like when I was in high school, I think we'd be really challenged by that. Yeah. Well, even some younger people nowadays don't have the skills necessary to navigate without Google Maps. Or even people that grew up in the Southwest on a grid system that moved to the East Coast and became traveling salespeople that rely on their GPSs. (laughs) Not to name any names. (laughs) There's a lot of challenge there. I think a lot of it comes down to the engineer in the engineer Acteon is, is trying to, you know, do a lot of great things to improve the society. But I think a lot of it comes down to he can't do it by himself. It's shown in both of the stories, the one that I'm writing now and the one that I've written already, that he needs to work with a variety of different people and teach them those things. And he realizes he's not going to be able to fix this himself. And that's why he wants to share this technology with everybody else and try to get them to learn how to use it, even if sometimes it's a risk. So our reliance on one another is very important post-apocalyptic and with engineering if we want to try to build back up to that specialist civilization that we can live in. So teamwork, work together. (laughs) So Uh, listeners at home, uh, you can find Darren through any of the links in our show notes. You can also find him hanging around the sci-fi round table, of course. Do your part. Go out and find an engineer in your community and boggle him with questions or her. (laughs) Uh, You can find all of our contact info on the show notes. Don't forget to check out the Roundtable's group for readers, reading the Roundtable of Science Fiction and Fantasy on Facebook. Uh, John's stuff is available. You can access me at thesciencefantasyhub.com. John, any any parting thoughts? You can check out my Wasteland series. I've got Wizard of the Wasteland, Knight of the Wasteland, King of the Wasteland. So they're my post-apocalyptic ones. And then if you listen to this in the future, hopefully my Black Death series will also be available. Sounds lovely. All right. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, this has been another episode of The Roundtable. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Darren, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, both of you. And uh, it's been a fun time. Cheerio. Cheerio.